So what if we've got it all wrong? What if we've got it backwards? What if investing isn't about us at all? What if investing is about what we invest in or who we invest in? A lot of investment talk, especially in the United States, is all about what we can get back from it. We want to invest in something that's going to give us a high rate of return. Investment in a lot of investment firms and in America is all about us. But what if we've got it backwards? As we've been studying the life of Jesus, we see that Jesus comes in and he takes what people think they know about the world and he flips it upside down and says that what they think they know is backwards. And I believe that's what Jesus is teaching us about investment as he talks so often about money. So for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at a few of Jesus' teachings when it comes to money and different sorts of investment. There's, there's ways to invest than more than just money. We can invest time and invest energy and invest prayers. So there's lots of different ways to invest. But Jesus is going to talk about different forms of investment, and we're going to see what he has to say about it. And maybe, just maybe, we're going to see that we've got it all backwards. So we're going to start today in Luke chapter 16. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn there. We're actually going to look at what I believe is one of the most fantastically difficult parables in Scripture to interpret. Uh, It's a a parable that I almost skipped because it's so difficult to interpret. It's so interesting. Um, But the point of it, I think if we unpack it correctly, is so good that it's worth diving into. But I'm going to ask you to sort of hang in there with me as we go through it. It's going to take a little bit of time to unpack the layers. But when when we unpack it, when we sort of uncover the meaning there, we're going to see that Jesus has some really great things to say. So I'm going to do something a little different today. Usually I don't read the whole passage all at once. I sort of expound upon it as we go. But I want to read the whole parable at once just so you can get the force of it um, and just so you can understand why it's so difficult to interpret. So Luke chapter 16, we'll start in verse 1. Jesus told his disciples, There was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job uh, here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? "'900 gallons of oil,' he replied. "'The manager told him, "'Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450.' "'Then he asked the second, "'And how much do you owe?' "'A thousand bushels of wheat,' he said. "'He told him, "'Take your bill, sit down, and make it 800.' "'The master commended the dishonest manager "'because he had acted shrewdly.' For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the lights. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into an eternal dwelling. At which point you all are thinking, huh? That's what you all sort of look like right now. Huh? Right? At first glance, when we first read through this parable, it seems like Jesus is commending this 
this manager, this steward, who had had a dishonest career and capped it off with one final act of dishonesty as he ripped off his master one final last time, and the manager sort of says, attaboy. Right? And we read that, and then Jesus sort of uses that as a positive example for how his disciples are supposed to use money. And we, we, we read that, and we're like, huh? What? Jesus, that doesn't make any sense. So, in order to understand this a little bit better, I'm going to help you unpack it. And one of the ways that we can unpack this, and this is just good uh, biblical exegesis, biblical interpretation, is, is a lot of times if something doesn't make sense, we should ask ourselves, is there something going on in first century cultural context that we don't understand in 21st century America? Right? Because the Bible, believe it or not, is not a 21st century book. The Bible, believe it or not, was not written to a Western American audience in the 21st century. It was written over a period of uh, about a thousand years, a little bit more, by uh, over 20 different writers in a culture that was completely removed from our culture. Everything was different. So if things don't make sense, one of the questions we can ask ourselves is, what was going on in first century Jewish culture that might have made sense to them that doesn't necessarily make sense to us today? Uh, so when we get into this, uh, I'm indebted to the work of the world-renowned scholar, uh, New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright. He tells us that for a first century Jew who hears a, a parable begin with uh, talking about a master in a steward, they would have automatically understood that we're talking about God in Israel. Because in the, in the Hebrew scriptures, in what we call the Old Testament, a lot of times uh, God is pictured as the master and Israel is pictured as his steward, uh, the 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 group that God had entrusted to carry out his mission. You see, in ancient times, much like in in some cultures today, in some uh, spheres today, uh, a master, a a wealthy person, might hire someone to take care of all of their business. They might hire a manager or a steward. This uh, would be a high level of authority who would take care of the, the different aspects of management, of business and home life and all of that. It would free the master up to travel and go do other things, and the steward would stay home and sort of watch over the day-to-day operations. And so in first century Israel, they would understand that the, the nature of God in Israel in the Old Testament was like a master and a steward. God had entrusted the nation of Israel with um, this responsibility to carry out his message, to shine his light to the nations, to to steward his word and to share it with others, and he had given them a mission. And time and time again in the Hebrew scriptures, Israel sort of fell short. They didn't they didn't complete, they didn't carry out, they weren't faithful to what God had entrusted them to do. And so for a first century Jewish hearer, like would have been hearing Jesus in this parable, this would have made a lot of sense. The second aspect of first century Jewish culture that will help us understand this parable is uh, lending practices. You see, in, uh, according to the Jewish law, according to the Mosaic law, it was against the Mosaic law to lend money at interest. If you wanted to lend money to me, you could lend money to me to help me out if I was in a dire situation. But God says you weren't allowed to charge me interest because he wanted to protect against predatory financial practices. He, he knew that with uh, lots of interest, it could keep somebody in debt bondage for a long, long period of time. So God forbade charging usury or interest on monetary loans. So greedy people, being greedy people, were able to figure out a way to sort of work the system. Instead of giving monetary loans, they would do what was called a a loan in kind. In other words, instead of lending you money, I might lend you oil. 
And so if I lend you oil, then there's nothing that technically forbids me from charging interest on the oil. So let's say I lend you 450 barrels of oil, but oil is a high, uh, a hot commodity, I might charge 100% interest on that. And so all of a sudden now I'm telling you, you've got to pay me back 900 barrels of oil, even though I only lend you 450 barrels of oil. And in doing that, I'm getting around the law, because I'm not lending you money, but I'm still making money. And so greedy people, being greedy people, were able to figure out a way to work the system. Uh, and so we, uh, a lot of scholars, when they look at this parable here, they, they believe that's what's going on in this particular case. That the debtors who had, been, um, who had been lent this stuff, they had been charged interest. Now what's not clear in this is whether it was the master who was charging the interest or whether it was the steward who was charging the, the interest uh, apart from the master's knowledge. Now, if... In this parable, the master is supposed to represent God, and the steward is supposed to represent sort of unfaithful Israel. It sort of makes sense to me that the, it was the steward who was charging interest sort of under the nose of the master. Right? And maybe this is why the master is now calling the manager or the steward to account. He realizes that this steward has been doing this. And, and so what would happen then is the, the steward would, would, uh, would make the, he would do the business transaction on behalf of the master. He would give the master what was owed and would sort of keep the interest for himself on top. He would, he would sort of skimming off the top to, to set aside a, a cushy retirement fund later on. And so when the master finds out about this, he calls him to account. Uh, and so when the, the, the manager sits down the debtors and he cuts their bill down, it's not that he's being dishonest, it's that he's finally charging them what they actually owe. So in other words, he's finally making things right now that he's been found out. He's been acting dishonestly all along, and now he is um, setting things right, which is one of the reasons why his master then can praise him for acting shrewdly. Now, this is one possible interpretation. It's not the only interpretation, but it's the one that I think makes most sense in light of God's character, if God really is represented by the master, and that makes the most sense of Jesus' overall teaching. So what we have here is a dishonest manager who's been skimming off the top. He gets caught red-handed, and then now he goes and he makes it right by, by fixing the bill to what it really should be. Now, there's another layer of first century culture here that helps us understand this a little bit uh, more in depth as well. One of the keys to interpreting Scripture is understanding that Scripture needs to be interpreted in its context, right? In its context. There are things going on before a passage, and there are things going on after a passage uh, that we need to take into consideration. So, Luke chapter 16, this might surprise you, comes right after Luke chapter 15. Am I going too fast? Okay, Luke chapter 16 comes right after Luke chapter 15, and the, the audience in the parables in Luke chapter 15 is the Pharisees. So we know the Pharisees are around, and they're hearing Jesus talk these parables. Now when we go to the end of, uh, when we go to chapter 14, I'm sorry, verse 14 in chapter 16, we see the Pharisees are still around, they're still hearing this. As a matter of fact, uh, Luke chapter 16, verse 14 says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. So we have the Pharisees who are an audience to this parable, right? They are, they're hearing Jesus talk about this. Now, one of the things about the Pharisees, and we've talked about this before, is they were very concerned about keeping the law of Moses. Because as they read through their scriptures, the Old Testament, they understood that when Israel forsook the law, bad things happened. And so they were very serious about keeping the law. In fact, they were so serious about keeping the law, and these later, a lot of these later Jewish leaders were so serious about keeping the law that they, 
they developed this system of complex rules that they believed sort of formed a fence around the law. Formed a fence around the law. This is referred to by different words uh, in the scriptures. We see the tradition of the elders. Uh, and these, this series of complex rules was designed to function sort of like guardrails on a highway. When you're driving down the highway, right, and you're close to an edge, there's a guardrail on the side of the road. And the guardrail is set in a few yards from the real danger, which is the, the cliff uh, on the other side of the guardrail, right? So they would, they, you set a guardrail in closer so that you don't go over the cliff. In other words, these rules were designed to, to keep people from keeping the law. In other words, they were more strict than the law itself. These rules were more strict than the law itself. And the Pharisees tried to enforce these on other people. The problem was, is this made it more and more difficult for people to approach God. And it made God seem like he was um, uh, more distant and, and, and harder to please than he really was. By, by creating these rules, even though they had good intentions, they were actually making it more difficult. In the same way that this particular manager was adding to what these debtors owed, the Pharisees sort of added to what people had to do in order to please God. And it, and it made God seem more onerous and difficult than he really was. So that's another aspect of uh, first century culture that helps us sort of understand what's going on in this parable. So when we look at it through those lens, when we look at the, the context, both within Scripture itself, as well as the cultural context of the time, we sort of understand that what we have here is not a steward who is dishonest his whole career and then caps it off with one final great act of much more dishonesty, but that he finally comes around and he does the right thing by cutting the bill down to what it was supposed to be. And, and in doing so, right, he was cutting into his own profits. He was cutting into his own profits, but by doing so, he made his master look a lot better, right? He made his master look like he was fair and generous, um, but he was cutting into his, his own uh, profits, so to speak, and he was benefiting the debtors, right? The debtors now had less to pay. So everybody, except for him, well, I guess maybe he gets to keep his job, but everybody is now better off because he's now doing the right thing. So that's what we have going on in this parable. But Jesus takes it one step further, and he gives us uh, his application in verse 9. Let me remind you. Jesus says this to his disciples. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. At first reading, this might look like Jesus is saying you can buy your way into heaven, right? You can buy your way into heaven if you just spend the money, if, if, you know, if you just uh, spend the right money, you make friends, then all of a sudden you can buy your way into heaven. That's not what Jesus is saying. Most scholars believe that Jesus here is referring to almsgiving, giving to the poor and the needy. This is consistent with Jesus' message throughout the Gospel of Luke. We've seen time and time again Jesus talk about caring for those who are in need. And so what Jesus is saying is use money. Again, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with money. It's not money that's the root of all evil. It's what? The love of money that's the root of all evil. Money's not evil in and of itself. It's, it's our love for money. So Jesus is saying we can take money, which can be used for good or for bad, and we can use it to invest in, in areas that people have need. And in doing so, he's saying there's going to be an eternal payoff. In other words, we may not see a, a financial return on our investment, so to speak, but as we give to those who have need, as we invest in the kingdom of God, there is an eternal payoff for us. Jesus is saying, your investment isn't about you. It's not about setting up you know, a cushy retirement fund for yourself. It's about investing in the kingdom, investing in those who have need. And in doing so, you're actually investing in the longest period of your life. Because our time on earth, if we believe what scripture says, our time uh, 
on earth as, as physical flesh and blood humans it, it is relatively short when we compare that with eternity in our new bodies with the Lord, right? So Jesus is saying as we, in, as we use worldly wealth towards kingdom ends, we're actually investing in what's really the longest period of our times. And this is one of the things that I love about Jesus and the things that I love about the, the, the kingdom of God is that when Jesus says, if you give away from yourself, if you put yourself last, which is what almsgiving does, right? When we give to other people with no hope of return from them, that's what love really is. When we invest in others with no hope of return for ourselves, he's actually saying that we have greater benefit in the long term. So, in other words, if you want to be the most selfish, then give it away, right? If you want to be the most selfish, then give it away, because as you give it away, you're really investing in the longest term of your life. If you put others first, Jesus says, then God will make sure to take care of you for all of eternity. So, one of the most fantastically difficult parables, I believe, but as we unpack it in terms of first century culture, there's, we see there's a double layer of meaning. Number one. We see Jesus' warning against creating unnecessary burdens for those who are coming to God. Right? We don't want to make things more difficult. We don't want to add rules to, to God's rules uh, because we think that they're important. And, and you can think of those. You can think of things in the Christian church where we may in the past have tried to add rules onto people's obedience to make them come closer, rules about dress, or rules about what you can do or can't do that's not explicitly laid out in Scripture. We try to make things more difficult sometimes than, than they really need to be. But number two, and this is where I want to get to with our uh, uh, invested series, the greatest financial investment you can make is in the kingdom of God. The greatest financial investment you can make is in the kingdom of God. As we, as we think beyond ourselves, as we invest in the kingdom through almsgiving and, and giving to the spread of the gospel and giving to help those who are in need as we give to different financial ministries, the, the greatest financial investment we can make is in the kingdom of God. And that's going to have the longest payoff in the end. It may not give us a cushy retirement in this life. But it will have a long-term payoff, not only for us, but also for the people that we invest in, right? When we invest in those who have need, when we invest in people who are, who are poor or who are sick or who are far from God, as we invest in these people, it's not only going to pay off for us for eternity, but it's going to pay off for them as well, right? And it's going to pay off in our society and in our community. And we really can make the world a better place as we learn to invest in things beyond ourselves, to invest in what we believe in, invest in things and people that have long-term and eternal potential. The greatest financial investment we can make is in the kingdom of God. So where are we invested? Where are we invested? Where is your personal investment? Where does most of your time go? Where does most of your energy go? Where do most of your prayers go? Where do most of your money go? Where, where are you invested? I want you to think about these things in the next couple of weeks as we look at this. Where, where do your talents go? God has given you talents and abilities. God has given you time. God has given you passion and heart. Are you directing those towards kingdom work, towards, towards doing the work that Jesus called us to do, to make disciples and transform communities. Where are you invested? Where are we invested as a church? How do we spend our time? How do we spend our money? How do we spend our, our talent? How do we spend our time? All of these things are things that we want to think about as we think about what God has entrusted us with and how we can be faithful stewards and faithful managers as we invest in the thing that will be the longest part of our lives. Where are we invested? Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for these teachings. 
that can be difficult sometimes for us to understand. Um, but as we, as we dive into them, we, we thank you for them. We thank you for the reminder that you have called us to partner with you in ministry. God, you didn't have to do that. You could have done it a different way, but you have chose to include us. And I believe, God, that's because you want us to experience the joy of working together with you to see your will and your kingdom come to pass in our time. So, Father, help us to change the way that we think, Father. If we, if we do have it backwards, help to reshape our thoughts and reshape our hearts. Help us to have kingdom hearts and kingdom eyes as we look towards the ways that we can invest in what it is that you're doing here. As we move forward as individuals and as a church, help us to wisely use what you have entrusted us with. Help us to not just sit on it, but to invest it well, to invest it in things that are going to have a long-term return, eternal return. God, help us to just think about things a little bit differently, to to see and understand and live into this upside-down kingdom of God. Thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.